Section 27 of The Lion's Brood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shashang Jakmola. The Lion's Brood by Duffield Osborne. Flight. Slowly, Sergius disengaged himself from the death grip that entangled him and, rising, turned to where Marcia stood. Still holding the lighted lamp above her head and peering forward, she gazed into his eyes with a look wherein wonder and terror were mingled with awakening joy. "'Who are you?' she faltered at last. "'You who come as a slave, bearing the face of a shade.' "'I am a shade,' he answered, once sent back by Orcus, by the hand of Mercury, to save a Roman woman from dishonour. Oh, my lord Lucius, she cried, falling upon her knees and holding out her hands toward him. Truly it was not dishonour to avenge you, to save the Republic, but if it were, then may your means pity and forgive me. There, now, is the dagger. Take it and use it, so that I, too, may be your companion when you return to the land that owns you. I love you, Lucius. The laughter of the old days has passed. Surely a woman who is about to die may say to the dead words which a girl might not say to her lover for the shame of them. I love you. I love you. Take me before the maiden, Prosper Pine, that she may show us favour to your land. The lamp fell from her hand. She felt herself raised suddenly from the pavement and strained hard against a bosom that rose and fell with all the pulsations of life and love. Frightened, wondering, she struggled faintly, while kisses warm and human fell upon her brow, her eyes, her lips. Marcia, little bird, dearest, purest, best, murmured a voice close to her ear. Yes, you shall go with me to my land, and that land is Rome. Still she trembled in his arms, not daring to believe. Wait, he said. Then, releasing her for a moment, he regained the fallen lamp, relighted it and placed it in its niche, facing her again with arms outspread. Look well, am I not indeed Lucius Sergius, once pierced and worn with wounds, but now well and strong to fight or love? The tale I told you was true. It was my tale, the saving of one Roman from the slaughter of her legions. She drew closer and looked again into his eyes. Yes, she said, and in her voice the joy began to sweep away all other feelings. Yes, you are indeed Lucius Sergius Fidenus, man, not shade. But, taking her hand, he interrupted, Do you not remember the omen, my Marcia? How you said you would love me when Orcus should send back the dead from Acheron. How I accepted it. How the gods have brought all about, as was most to their honour and my joy. For now you have indeed said that you love me. She placed her free hand upon his shoulder, saying, And that which I, Marcia, daughter of Titus Manlius Torquatus, have said unto the shade, that say I to the living Lucius Sergius, Take me, love, for where thou art Caius, there shall I be Caia. Once again he took her in his arms and kissed her upon the lips, long and tenderly.
Then she drew herself back. You are wounded, she said anxiously. Forgive me that I forgot. Truly, I forget all things. Now, in this wonder and joy, Sergius laughed. He pricked me in the thigh, I think, but not deeply. The gods have brought me so close to the shades that I am enough akin to them not to heed little herds. But she had seized the lamp and was examining his injury, a flesh wound that, while it had bled freely, yet seemed to have avoided the larger muscles and blood vessels. Did I not tell you? He said reassuringly as she rose from her knee. A close bandage so that it will not bleed, that is all we shall want, for my strength must remain with me yet a little while, if we would truly go to Rome and not to the realms of the dead. She said nothing, but, tearing strips from her stole, proceeded deftly to bind them around the leg. Agathas Lys himself could not do better, nay, I doubt Esculapius, but she rose again quickly and placed her finger upon his lips. It is the gods who have saved us to each other. Do not make them angry, lest they withdraw their favour. I am ready to follow you, my lord Lucius. Standing erect, he raised both hands in invocation. A shrine to Venus the Preserver, to Apollo the Healer. Then, stooping quickly, he drew the long dark robe of Idilcar from where it lay entangled about the legs of the corpse. Fortunately, it had slipped down the Carthaginian's shoulders early in the struggle. Perhaps he had tried to free himself from it. Perhaps it had been partly torn away. But, in either event, it had fallen where it must have hampered his movements even more seriously and where it was less stained with his blood than might have been expected. Sergius threw it over his own tattered, blood-stained garments, striving to hide the rents and raising it high about his neck so as to conceal his face as much as possible. Meanwhile, Marcia, having bound on her sandals, had of her own accord donned the mantle Idilcar had brought for her and which had fallen by the door of the apartment. Then, gathering up her long, thick hair, she confined it close above her head, drawing down upon it the hat that lay beside the cloak, a broad-brimmed Greek petasus, admirably adapted for concealment as well as protection. "'I am ready,' she said eagerly. "'Let us make haste.' Sergius was stooping over the dead man, searching for something. "'It is the ring,' he said the ring with the seal of the great council of which he spoke. How else should we pass the guard at the gate? A moment later he rose, and going to the light, examined carefully the several rings taken from the priest's fingers. One by one they dropped and rolled away over the floor. The last only remained, and Marcia, looking over his shoulder, saw a heavy, gold signet bearing the device of a horse under a palm tree. Come now he said, taking her hand. He had thrust the long knife of Idilcar into the girdle of his tunic, and this was their only weapon. So, leading Marcia, he quickly traversed the halls and courts and gained the door, which hung ajar and unattended. Outside, a company of five men were gathered, all mounted. Two were apparently soldiers, a sort of guard. The rest were servants. 
heavy-looking packages were bound, behind them, on their horses' backs, doubtless the money which Idilgar had gotten, while two extra animals, saddled and bridled, were held in waiting. The heart of Sergius leaped as he noted the fine, small heads and slender muscular legs that marked the Asian stock of their mounds. Idilgar had provided well for all emergencies, but Sergius felt some anxiety lest a chance glimpse of his face might lead to detection. The sky in the east was already beginning to lighten, and there were more men of the escort than he had anticipated. Speech would be fatal. Therefore he strode quickly out, took the bridle of one of the horses from the man who held it, and swung himself upon its back. To assist Marcia could not be done without exciting suspicion, and he ground his teeth when she tried to follow his example, and one of the servants laughed and pushed her roughly into the saddle. Then they rode on, and the others followed, whispering together. He had muffled his face a trifle too closely, perhaps, and he had mounted the horse standing, whereas all knew that the Capodacians were trained to kneel at the word. Therefore the men of the escort wondered though they hardly ventured to suspect. Marcia felt, rather than noted, their attitude, and Sergius, glancing toward her, saw that she was trembling. He urged his horse faster toward the gate that opened upon the Appian Way. Boldness and speed were all that could save them. Suddenly the gate loomed up, grey and massive, in the mist of the early morning. Several soldiers lounged forward from the guardhouse, whence came the rattle of dice and the shrill laughter of a woman. Sergius showed his ring and said nothing, while Marcia came close to him, shivering, for the morning air was chill and biting. Their followers had drawn rein and were gathered in a little clump, several spear lengths behind. Meanwhile the soldiers, Spaniards they seemed, were gazing stupidly at the device on the seal and making irrelevant comments. It was evident that their night had been spent among the wineskins and that a new danger menaced. Summoning what Punic he knew, Sergius leaned forward and asked in a low but stern voice to see their officer. Fortunately, his own followers were too far away to hear his words, and drunken Iberians would not be critical as to a faulty Punic accent. Still they hesitated, chattered together, and stared, but at last one who seemed more sober than the rest reeled away to the guardhouse, and, after some delay and evident persuasion, emerged again with a young officer whose moist, hanging lips and filmy eyes showed that he, too, had been dragged from the pursuit of pleasure. Helmetless and with loosened corselet, every detail of his appearance told the story of relaxed discipline. "'What do you want at this hour?' he said thickly, ambling forward and leaning heavily upon the shoulder of his scarcely more steady guide. Again, Sergius held out the ring, and the man, being a native Carthaginian, recognized it through the mist of his intoxication, and, throwing himself at full length, touched the earth with his forehead. "'What do you wish?' he said, rising and standing, somewhat sobered by the presence of such authority. "'Open the gate. I ride under orders of shalishism,' said the Roman, again speaking low and rapidly. The officer turned and shouted to his men, and several ran to unbar the gate with such speed as the condition warranted. The other occupants of the guardhouse were now grouped at door, 
five men, half-armed, and two disheveled women with painted faces and flower-embroidered palaces. The gate swung slowly on its hinges. The light of the bells be with you, friend, exclaimed Sergius, and he and Marcia rode through with hearts beating madly. Voices raised in discussion made them turn in their saddles. In his drunken stupidity, the Carthaginian officer was trying to detain their escort and servants. The master had said nothing about them. How did he know they belonged to the same party? Then all began gesticulating and shouting to Sergius for help and explanation. Here was an unforeseen incident, and the mind of the young Roman viewed it rapidly in all its lights. On the one side, he would be relieved of an awkward following that might at any moment begin to suspect him. On the other hand, to leave these in the lurch would be to invite prompt suspicion. Still, they were fifty yards or more in advance. Their horses were good, and more space would be gained before the tangle at the gate could be straightened out. Therefore he waved his arm, as if making some signal, and turning again in his saddle, rode on, but without increasing his speed. Louder shouts followed him, for, as he had intended, his gesture had proved unintelligible. Then, when they saw he did not stop, the cry ceased suddenly and an animated chattering came to his ears. Here was suspicion trying to make itself understood and, at last, succeeding, for, as Sergius glanced back once more to note how the matter progressed, the young captain of the gate sprang forward and shouted for him to halt. A third altar to Mercury the Hastener, exclaimed Sergius, quick now, with the knees, and, pressing the flanks of his Cappadocian, both animal bounded forward into a headlong gallop. End of section number 27